0: you so much for that wonderful reminder that he lives. And you asked me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, right? So we love singing here at Plasterito. We've had our our share of that this morning, and now we want to also get into the Word of God, and so if you do have your Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 28. I've already read the whole chapter to you this morning, and I'll just be preaching out of the first 10 verses, and so we're going to jump right in there together this morning. Matthew 28, 1 through 10. The title of the sermon today is He Has Risen. Pray with me if you will, and then we'll jump in. So Father, thank you so much that you do live. Thank you that you raised your son from the dead. Thank you that we can come together today to celebrate the resurrection. So be with us during our message, Lord, that we may learn more of the Lord Jesus and the significance of his life, that we might walk in the light of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, Max Lucado, in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, tells the story of a missionary in Brazil, who discovered a tribe of Indians in a remote part of the jungle. They lived near a large river. The tribe was in need of medical attention. There was a contagious disease that was ravaging the population, and people were dying every day. A hospital was not too terribly far away, but it was across the river. And none of the Indians wanted to cross the river because they believed that it was inhabited by evil spirits. Furthermore, they were afraid that to enter the river would mean certain death. The missionary explained how he had crossed the river and was unharmed, but they were not impressed. He then took them to the bank of the river and placed his hand in the water and they still wouldn't go in. He walked into the river up to his waist and splashed water on his body and on his face, but it didn't matter. They were still too afraid to enter into the river. Finally, he dove down into the river, swam beneath the surface until he emerged on the other side. When he got out of the water, he raised a triumphal fist into the air. He had entered the water and escaped. It was then that the Indians broke out in a cheer, and followed him across. Well, isn't that exactly what Jesus did? He entered the river of death, and he came out on the other side so that we, too, might no longer fear death but have eternal life in him. But do you know what the problem is? The problem is is that everybody in the world believes that Jesus died, But only Christians believe that he was raised from the dead. Nobody argues about the existence of Jesus. They believe he was a historical figure who died. But again, only Christians believe that he was raised from the dead. Christians believe that Jesus jumped into the river and that he came out victorious on the other side. And while the world believes in the historicity of Israel and while they believe in a historical Jesus, they will not believe in a resurrected Christ. So the world believes all of history except for the resurrected savior. The world believes that Abraham existed and was the father of the Jewish nation. The world believes that Moses existed and somehow led the Israelites out of Egypt. The world believes that David existed and was a great king in Israel. The world believes that John the Baptist existed and was a radical prophet. No unbeliever can or would argue against these things successfully because they are clearly recorded facts of history. But the world cannot and will not accept the resurrection because the resurrection changes everything. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then it moves from a history lesson of one of the prominent religions of the world, like Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, to a life-transforming truth, placing Christianity at the apex of all religion. Not only does the resurrection place Christianity at the apex of all religion, but the resurrection makes it clear that Christianity is the only religion only the resurrection of Christ accurately expresses God's love for the world and teaches the way that man can be made right with God only by repenting of our sin and believing by faith in Jesus's perfect life and in his death and in his resurrection can you have eternal life it was Jesus who said in John 14:6 I am the way I am the truth and I am the life. The Bible says in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven amongst people can believe and must be saved. The resurrection was the first message of the apostle Peter in Acts 2, when he says that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection was not only the first message of the apostle Peter, it was also the first message of the apostle Paul in Acts 13, where he says, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of his death, they asked Pilate to have him executed, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But, God raised him from the dead. The fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and is alive and he is well today, it's taught in every book of the New Testament. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the living son of God. In Luke, he's the savior born to us in the city of David, Christ the Lord. In John, he's the word become flesh dwelling among us. In Acts, he is Christ, the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to the nations. In Romans, he is our justifier. In 1st and 2nd Corinthians, he is the spirit at work in the churches. In Galatians, he is the righteousness imputed to us by faith. In Ephesians, he is our spiritual armor. In in, uh, Philippians, he is the God who meets our every need. In Colossians, he is the firstborn over all creation. In 1st and 2nd Thessalonians he's descending from heaven with a shout coming to meet us together in the clouds. In 1st and 2nd Timothy he is the one mediator between God and man. In Titus he is our faithful pastor. In Philemon he is our redeemer restoring us to service. In Hebrews he is our great high priest. In James he is the life at work in our faith. In 1st and 2nd Peter, he is our living cornerstone. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is our advocate, pleading his righteousness in our place. In Jude, he's God our savior, the one who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless in his presence with fullness of joy. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and the risen King of kings, and the Lord of lords. You see, Christianity's always been about him. Every book of the Bible, every preacher of the gospel, it's only been about Jesus. He is the center of it all. He is the resurrected Lord who ever lives to intercede for you, that you would come to him by faith. And so let me ask you this morning, friend, are you ready to give your life to Jesus today? I mean, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of doing it on your own, all alone, with no place to call home in eternity? Come to Jesus today, and he will by no means cast you out. There is room at the cross for you. And because Jesus lives, you too can have eternal life in his name. You see, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then that means you too believe that you'll die, but you can't really believe that you'll live again. And only if you believe that Jesus lived again can you also live again. And so this morning I want to talk to you about the fact that he is risen. Out of this text of Matthew 28, 1 through 10, I want to just show you four truths about the resurrection that we see in this passage this morning so that you can worship the risen Savior. If you are taking notes, it's all there for you in your outline. The first heading I want to give to you this morning is the significant reason why the resurrection happened on a Sunday. That first blank there is the dawn of the first day of the week. Notice it there in verse 1 of our passage, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. If you'll remember, it was on Thursday of the Passion Week that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. On Thursday, Jesus was betrayed with the kiss of death. All of Thursday night, Jesus went through illegal trials and questioning by the Jewish Sanhedrin. On Friday, Jesus was taken to Pontius Pilate. On Friday, Jesus was condemned to death. On Friday, Jesus was scourged with a whip of nine tails designed to take the skin off of his back. On Friday, Jesus was forced to carry his cross down the Via Dolorosa, Rosa, the way of suffering. On Friday, Jesus had a, cro- a, thr- a crown of thorns placed on his head. On Friday, Jesus was mocked, he was spit upon, and Jesus had his beard plucked out. On Friday, Jesus was nailed to the cross. And on Friday, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he had breathed his last, he gave up his spirit. On Friday, they took Jesus down from the cross, prepared his body for burial, and placed him in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. On Saturday, there was silence. Now on Sunday, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who was the mother of James and Joseph, came to the tomb. The Gospel of Luke records that they brought spices, that they might anoint the body of Jesus. The other Gospels also tell us that Salome, the mother of James and John, were there, along with Joanna, whose husband actually worked for Herod. Matthew focuses only on these two Mary's. Mary Magdalene was a woman from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. The name Magdalene likely indicates that she came from Magdala, a city on the southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And after Jesus cast the seven demons out of her, she became one of his faithful followers. And so here we are, on that first Easter Sunday, when Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And not only are we at the dawn of the first day of the week, but we are also, your next blank says, at the dawn of the new covenant in Christ. The dawn of the new covenant in Christ. The fact that the resurrection took place on the first day of the week is significant because it points to a change in the Christian faith. Ever since the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus chapter 20, the believing community of the Old Testament has worshiped on the Sabbath, which was on Saturday. In fact, here's what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Own it. You shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh, the Sabbath day and made it holy. So what changed? Well, what changed is that the old covenant that God made with Israel in the Old Testament under Moses was only intended to be followed until the new covenant was given. You see, the old covenant included the Ten Commandments, which theologians sometimes refer to as the moral law. But the old covenant also included the ceremonial law and the civil law. The ceremonial law gave guidelines on how people were to worship and relate to God, especially in formal circumstances. While the civil law gave guidelines as to how the people of God were to live in community with each other. And this is how Israel practiced their worship for centuries. They worshiped on the Sabbath. And then the prophet Jeremiah tells of the transition that will take place from the Old Covenant to the new covenant. In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, he writes this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make What are we looking at here? We're looking at the fact that the New Covenant emphasizes that God put his law or his word not on stone, but within the heart of every believer. And he writes his law of love and his law of forgiveness and his law of grace on our hearts. The New Covenant is made possible only through Jesus. The New Covenant is made possible only because of the resurrection The outer um, circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, while inner circumcision, or the circumcision of the heart, is the sign of the new covenant. And the new covenant emphasizes Jesus giving you a new heart. And the only way that Jesus could give you a new heart is by being raised from the dead. And this is why the book of Hebrews tells us that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Jesus teaches at the Last Supper, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul also tells us that through Christ, we are to be ministers of the new covenant. All that to say that when Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, everything changed. Christ, the second Adam, finished the work that the first Adam fell to do. And because of this landmark event of the resurrection, the early church decided that for Christians now living under the new covenant, the day of worship and celebration of the Lord's grace in Jesus Christ would be observed on the first day of the week, which is on Sunday. Now, the real question I have for you this morning is, do you worship Jesus once a week or do you worship him every day? You see, the new covenant focuses on the fact that every day is to be a Sabbath unto the Lord. No longer do we actually celebrate certain feasts or festivals, even though today Christians gather obviously for resurrection and we love to gather together also on Christmas. But nowhere in the New Testament does it command that we get together in that particular respect. It does say that we ought to meet together regularly as some are uh, uh, not neglect uh, gathering together as some are in their habit of doing. But the real question is, is do we see that every day is a spiritual rest that we can enter into because Christ has accomplished salvation, that we can follow him and realize that every day is a day of worship. Every day is a day where our hearts and our actions and our words and our deeds can demonstrate our lives that have been completely transformed. And so Sunday, just the first day of the week, a day that we can come together and do that, but really it's pointing to every day that we can have in that the fellowship and that communion with our risen Savior. And so now that we've seen that first truth about the resurrection so that we can worship Jesus, let's look at the second truth I want, to, want you to see out of the passage this morning is just this. Number two, the seismic impact of the resurrection moved heaven and earth. And your next blank there says big things happen in life in order to get your attention. Well, something big happened on that resurrection morn. Verse two, where we read that behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Big things happen in life to get your attention. This was actually the second earthquake of that particular weekend. There was a earthquake on Friday when Jesus died on the cross, and there is now this second earthquake on Sunday morning when the stone was rolled away. The word for earthquake here in your Bible, in the original, it's the word seismos, which is where we get our English word seismic from, which means relating to earthquakes or other vibrations of the earth and its crust. There are seismic waves that scientists measure as they study earthquakes. And the Bible says that this was a big one. That word literally in the original means a severe earthquake or a mega earthquake. And this one must have had measured really high on the Richter scale. And what happened with this earthquake? Well, I don't believe that it was the resurrection that caused the earthquake, but rather the angel who descended from heaven and rolled away the stone. Uh, Apparently, Jesus had already been resurrected, and if Jesus had the power to raise himself from the dead, he didn't need an angel to come and open the door of the tomb in order to let him out. No, after Jesus was resurrected, he had a glorified body, And while you could touch Jesus and feel his scars, and while Jesus also ate and drank with the disciples, he was also able to walk through walls. The earthquake did not happen to let Jesus out of the tomb, but the earthquake happened to let people into the tomb to see the place where he lay. We don't know this angel's name, but What we do know is that he was sent from the Lord, that he came down from heaven, and after he rolled back the stone, he sat on it as if to say, I have conquered this boulder. And his appearance was like lightning. There was a brilliance of radiant light coming from this angel, and his clothing was white as snow. And there is a power and a purity to the presentation of this angel that sets him apart as being otherworldly. And obviously this would have terrified the Roman guards who trembled and became like dead men. By the way, that word trembled is the same root word of seismos. So first the earth was shaking and then these guards were shaking and couldn't stop. And then finally they became like dead men. They were literally paralyzed with fear. They may have even become stuck in their fright. They were definitely traumatized by what they had seen. They were in a catatonic shock. God had caused an earthquake on Mount Sinai just before he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. And now God has caused another earthquake at the tomb after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the inauguration of the new covenant. The veil in the temple had been torn from top to bottom at the moment that Jesus died. There was complete darkness for three hours while Jesus hung on the cross. There was this earthquake that happened at Jesus' death, and now a second earthquake that is happening at Jesus' resurrection. All that to say that God brings big things into your life to get your attention. You know, we were watching the movie um, of Mel Gibson, The Passion of Christ, over the weekend, and I just couldn't help but think when you see this earthquake happened as depicted by the movie, and you see the darkness that sets in exactly in timing with the last three hours of Jesus' life, the earthquake at his death. You just think, man, if you'd have been there, how could you not see that, that, that God's upset? Or how could you not see that something big is happening and God's trying to get your attention? God does things to get our attention. And I think the next blank kind of points us to that a little bit more. The big things happen in your life to bring you to Jesus, they happen in your life to bring you to Jesus. Listen, I don't know everybody's story this morning, and I don't know what you've been through in your life, and I don't know where you are with God today, but I do know that he works through all of the little things, and he works through all of the big things in your life in order to get your attention. And sometimes the things that we take for granted or, or some, some things that we think are somewhat mundane, day-to-day things, are actually big things to God, like the sun that came up this morning and that will likely come up again tomorrow. It may seem like a small thing to you, but that is actually a pretty big thing to God. I mean, God created the sun and set it at the center of our galaxy, and it accounts for about 99% of the total mass of our solar system. The sun is 330,000 times as big as the earth, The sun is 5,778 degrees hot. Or maybe you take the beach for granted. God created the ocean, which covers about 71% of the earth's surface. The deepest part of the ocean is about 12,000 feet deep. The ocean contains 3.52 times 10 to the 20th power, or 352 quintillion gallons of water. Or maybe you take the fact that your heart beats every day for granted. Do you know that the heart beats about 100,000 times a day, about 35 million times a year, and the average lifetime it beats about 2.5 billion times? All I'm trying to say is that we sometimes think that things are little things in our lives that we take for granted where they're actually great big things. All of creation is to point you to Jesus and all earthquakes and thunderstorms and hurricanes and tsunamis and even forest fires are to point us to the power of God. It's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that says this about Jesus and his connection to creation. It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we read in our Bibles that not only does Jesus uphold the universe by the word of his power, but he also ordains every single thing that happens in your life to bring you closer to him. Every class that you take in school every person that you meet, every conversation that you have, every job that you work at, everything that you think, every experience that you could ever have all of life is to point you to Christ. The apostle Paul says it this way, Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose and for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed into the image of his Son. so now that verse is really saying that everything happens for a reason. You hear that all the time, even in our culture. Well, everything happens for a reason. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that that reason is to point you to God. That reason is to bring you to Christ. That reason is to mold you and to shape you and to conform you into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Everything that's happening in your life, that difficult in your family, that difficult thing in your family that you're facing, that unforgettable uh, interaction that you had with somebody at work, that hard time that you're having with others maybe in, in, your, in your circle, right? That, that struggle that's going on in your personal life right now, it's all to point you to Jesus. Only Jesus can help you. Only Jesus can use that trial to grow you and to mature you and to give you hope that he really is the answer. And if you're here this morning, it's not by accident, right? You, you are here so that you would hear about the love of God, for sinners, and the provision and the power that has been provided through Jesus Christ, our resurrected Savior. See the earthquake that happened on that first Easter morning, and let that same earthquake still provide shock in your life that you would look to the risen Savior. Well, let's move to our third truth about the resurrection that we see here in this passage so that we can worship the risen Savior. Number three, the startling announcement of the resurrection given by the angel. Your next blank there says, listen to and look at the truth of the resurrection. Look at verse five. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen. And he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. so we are to listen and to look at the truth of the resurrection. By the way, I think that it's important to realize that the first people that learned about the resurrection were all women. Women were the ones who came to the grave on Sunday morning, Women were the first ones to see the stone rolled away and to see and listen to the angel. Women were the first ones to see Jesus. And those who think that Christianity does a disservice to the female gender are obviously overlooking this fact. The Bible honors women and upholds their worth and their value as being precious daughters of the king. And the angel tells these women not to be afraid. Even though there was that great earthquake, even though the Roman guards have run away, even though there's an angel with the appearance of lightning, even though Jesus was nowhere to be seen in this moment, the angel tells the women that Jesus is not here, but that he is risen, and they are invited into the tomb to see the place where he lay. And if you're coming today to seek Jesus, then you need to know that he is risen, He is no longer in the grave. And the reason that Jesus is no longer in the tomb, like every other dead religious leader, is because Jesus is not just a man, he is also God. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Jesus, the God-man, did not stay in the grave, but he arose just as the Old Testament scriptures said that he would. Jesus was crucified and he did die, as opposed to the swoon theory, which states that after Jesus had been beaten next to an inch of his life, and after he had become a completely dehydrated person, the blood loss and the sheer exhaustion of hanging on the cross for hours, some skeptics who say, well, he didn't really die, and he wasn't really raised from the dead, present this swoon theory that say after all those things, even after the spear was thrust in his side where blood and water poured out signifying that he was dead, that somehow Jesus swooned or he became unconscious. And for three days, he was kind of in the tomb unconscious, and then somehow he just perked up and he moved a boulder that weighed several tons, and he beat up a gang of Roman soldiers, and he walked a mile or two back into Jerusalem where the disciples were waiting on him. Now, my friends, that could have happened. Like he had the power to do whatever he wanted, but that didn't happen. He, he didn't just swoon. He didn't just fall unconscious. Jesus actually died. Peter says in 1 Peter three eighteen for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Yes, Jesus died. But then Jesus was raised from the dead for all to see. There is no trickery here. There was no swooning. The disciples did not steal Jesus' body. There was not someone else impersonating the resurrected Lord. It was Jesus who died, and it was Jesus who was raised from the dead. And 1 Corinthians tells us that Jesus appeared after the resurrection to over 500 eyewitnesses. And maybe you're here today and you've never seen Jesus, but maybe the problem is that you're looking for him somewhere where he isn't. Jesus is not found in the tomb. Jesus is not found in the description of Jesus by those in our culture. Jesus cannot be defined by your own premonitions. The Jesus of the Bible is not dead, but he is alive. And once you realize that the resurrection is true, then you are also to your next blank go and tell others about what you have seen and experience. Just like these ladies, after they came and saw, they were instructed to go and tell. After you come and see, you are to go and you are to tell. The angel told these women that they were to go quickly and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen from the dead. And this is the moment that their faith became more real than ever before. These women had seen that Jesus was no longer in the grave and something happened to them they were changed they were different they began to internalize the truth of their resurrection and notice that before they had even seen jesus with their own eyes their faith propelled them to depart quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy as they ran to tell the disciples there was fear because this was such an awesome occurrence Fear because of amazing new possibilities. Fear because all of history will forever be changed by this event of the resurrection. And they are actually the first human beings alive on earth that had the privilege of telling about it. And there was also great joy because of this good news. Joy that surpasses all understanding. Joy that they would, that they would, what they had hoped for had now come true. Joy because all of the scripture and all of Jesus' teaching pointed to this event that had now happened right before their eyes. And when you experience the joy of salvation flooding into your soul, when you discover a deeper truth about God, when you see a miracle, then you have to go and tell others about it. This was the greatest miracle known to man. The resurrection is the crux of our Christian faith. The resurrection was bigger than a hundred Super Bowls all put together. The resurrection was more exciting than a thousand of your favorite movies. The resurrection was more powerful than a million-man army fighting with the most modern weaponry. And just a few months later, when Peter and John were arrested for preaching in the name of of Jesus. The authorities charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the difference the resurrection makes. No longer do you care about anybody else. No other authority, no other power, no other influence can really shape who you are and what you do. When you see and you hear, you become a witness for Christ. And so let me ask you this morning, do you boast about the resurrection? Are you fearless when it comes to your faith? Do you have convictions that are stronger than life? Have you listened to God's word and looked into the resurrection? If you're convinced that it's true, are you going and telling others about it? The last truth that I want you to see this morning about the resurrection is this, number four, the satisfying interaction the resurrection accomplished between God and man. That first blank there under this heading says, because of the resurrection, you can worship the risen Christ. Look at verses 9 and 10, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Because of the resurrection, you can worship the risen Christ. As the women are on their way to tell the other disciples that Jesus had risen, lo and behold, they meet Jesus on the road. This is no longer what they're told they're now out actually able to see, and Jesus meets them on the road, and he just offers this one word. He says, greetings. That can mean to be in a state of happiness and well-being. It can mean to rejoice and to be glad. In this context, that word greetings seems as if Jesus is actually greeting this, these women in a very normal natural way. This would have been the common, most common way that you would greet someone on which you are on good terms with. This common greeting may seem too simple or too ordinary for such a grand occasion, but it is as if Jesus wanted to give a casual greeting to express his warm, tender, and familiar relationship with these followers. You see, Jesus doesn't parade around too good to greet the common man. Jesus doesn't show up in pomp and circumstance. No, Jesus wants to greet his friends. He wants to be as kind and as gracious as he can be, and this was just the right word for the occasion. The lady's response was much more dramatic. They came up to Jesus, and then they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him and this proves that Jesus' body was not like a ghost, but he was materially there. These Christ followers did what came natural to them as they wanted to worship Jesus. And in this moment, they didn't want to talk. And in this moment, they didn't want to ask questions. And neither could they remain passive. They acted in accordance with their heart's desire. In that moment, their heart's desire was to simply worship the risen savior, to fall at his feet. God created us to be worshipers, worshipers, and unfortunately, we at times are tempted to worship other things or other people, and sometimes we'll say something like, she worships the ground that he walks on, or we may say something like, that's my whole life, meaning work is your life, or your kids are your life, or your hobbies are your life, but I'm here to tell you this morning that Jesus Is your life and because Jesus is your life we are here to worship him the Bible says where your treasure is there your heart will be also and to worship Jesus is to express in attitude or in gesture your complete dependence on or submission to Jesus hopefully you don't worship yourself or other people or other things because those things will never satisfy you. Only Jesus can satisfy that longing in your heart to ascribe worth and value to something. Only Jesus can satisfy that longing in your heart to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Only Jesus can feel that ache in your heart to be loved and to be accepted. And Jesus does that by saving you and then by changing you to such a degree that you will never be the same. That's what the resurrection is all about. It's about Jesus loving you. It's about him embracing you. It's about him greeting you. It's about him filling you with that which your soul longs for, himself. And not only does the resurrection make it possible for you to worship the risen Christ, but it also makes it possible for you to commune your next blank, to commune with the risen Christ. Notice that Jesus says, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Not only do we as humans have an innate desire to worship, but we have an innate desire to commune as well. From day six of creation, when we were created, until today, most all humans like to live together in families and in communities. Very rarely will someone reject all human relationships. We naturally like people. We like working with people and we like living with people and we like sharing our lives and our experiences with others. And because of the resurrection, we have the opportunity to commune with Christ. That's what I love about this passage. Not only are we to worship him, but we can just talk with him and commune with him that he greets us and we greet him and he wants to spend time together in precious fellowship. And he tells these ladies not to be afraid, but to go and tell his brothers to go to Galilee where they will see him again. Here are those words repeated, go and tell. That's just part of the DNA of a Christian. Whether you're going on the mission field or whether you live right here in Santa Carita, we are to go and to tell every day others about the good news of the resurrection. And Jesus wants to encourage the disciples that he will commune with them again For a short while, Jesus wanted to reconnect with his disciples and between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus ate with the disciples and he taught his disciples and he let them touch his hands and his side and he prepared them for his final departure and told them that he would be sending his Holy Spirit to empower them. Because of the resurrection, you too can commune with Christ. Jesus calls us friends. In Christ, we are recipients of his grace. Jesus says in John fifteen five that I am the vine, and you are the branches, and that whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, Jesus was raised from the dead, not just for that one-time earthquake, not just for that one-time event when you see him as he is, even though that's the beginning of your Christian faith. Jesus wants to continue with you throughout your life. And if you're here this morning and you're seeing Jesus through this text, let me encourage you not to be afraid of him. He has come to earth to reveal himself to you. Don't be afraid of what you've done. In Christ, all of your sins can be forgiven. Don't be afraid of your future. In Christ, you can have an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and will never fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. But all of this is solely based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't be like those Indians in Brazil who were too afraid to jump into the river. Jesus has crossed over to the other side. And when you come to Christ, he shields you from danger and he offers you living water. And because of his sacrifice, he delivers you from God's judgment upon sinners. But this is only applied in your life if you believe that he is risen. Remember, every person on the planet believes that Jesus died. But only Christians believe that he is risen. And make no doubt about it, it takes faith to believe that he is risen. It takes faith to believe in a miracle. And it also takes faith to believe in a fact. It takes faith to believe in gravity. It takes faith to believe in the second law of thermodynamics. It takes faith to believe in quantum physics. Faith is believing in facts that you cannot see. Faith is trusting in what God's word says about his love for you. Faith is about acknowledging that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The New Testament is a lie if Jesus is dead, for every part of it points to a risen Christ. This morning, I hope that you'll acknowledge that not only did Jesus die, but that he was raised from the dead. And the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Do you believe this morning? He is risen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at the resurrection of our Lord through the scripture here in Matthew chapter 28. And we just pray that today, God, that while we would join the world in believing in the death of Christ, that we would differ from the world by also believing in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you that Jesus lives, that he lives in the scripture and he lives in this world and he lives in heaven and he lives within our hearts and that we could sing about that today and that we could have deeper encouragement about that today. And I pray that if someone's struggling with that today, that you would grant them the power to see Christ, that you would reveal to them the power of Christ that can change their dead heart, that you wrote your old covenant on a stone to show us our need of a new covenant, that in Jesus you've written on our hearts the law of love and the law of liberty and the law of of the love of God shown to us through our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as we think about that this morning, as we sing this last song, may we continue to give you all the praise and all the worship, for you are risen from the grave. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.